welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and today we're welcoming Darwin, not Charles Darwin. We are not <laughs> channeling Charles Darwin here. Uh, Darwin is his nom de plume, as it were, or more nom de podcast. How do you say podcast in French? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, and he is trained in biology, has a degree in biology. He used to teach biology. And he has a really interesting way of looking at the paranormal. And his podcast expresses that different viewpoint, but also he likes to do some satire and he's a really funny guy. So welcome to Darwin. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So uh, right off the bat, like I am very excited to be on this podcast because it seems like, uh, dare I say, safe space for us weirdos who have yes. come out of the nuts and bolts closet. <laughs> yes. Yes. As we've talked many times. Yes. Yes. Flesh and blood, nuts and bolts. I, I will talk with anybody. Uh, except Philip Kloss. I'm not going to talk to him. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. And for, I don't for, talk to him. for the listeners, like you've heard, I uh, have a degree in biology. I'm trained in biology, but don't uh, start the episode thinking that I'm a whole, you know, flesh and blood type of guy. Um, as you'll see later on, we're going to go into some very esoteric metaphysical stuff. Exactly. And, you know, I don't I don't feel that like that's odd because science started with metaphysics and with alchemy and with honestly religious belief. Science came out of all of that. Yeah, uh, uh, so essentially mythology sparked scientific thought, but the more science progressed, the more it erased its own origin. It's like it, consu yes. it consumes its own mother, which birthed it. Yes. I think that's a really good way to put it. It's, it is like the snake eating its own tail. It is like Ouroboros mm -hmm. that way. It, it tries to remake history by consuming the past and, and hiding it, but it, it doesn't work. Yeah. If, yeah. if you're smart and if you read a lot. So to start off, I used to do a podcast called Darwin's Deviations. That's how I got the pseudonym Darwin, because I portrayed a character. And as you heard, I did a satire parody podcast. Now, I used to be a biology teacher and uh, teaching biology to high schoolers. You kind of realize that high schoolers don't care about science and you as a teacher are essentially a gateway to science. You're a person who knows the hard science, but you need to be a gateway drug to people, to the layman public who are not aware of the science and don't know how to maybe articulate it. So you need, you need to translate it for them. Now, working with high schoolers, uh, obviously, you need to animate them. You need to intrigue them. And sometimes you would over-exaggerate things or blatantly lie or, you know, <laughs> act like a trickster entity because teaching is a performance art. And the best thing when I was a teacher was when I would trick a student into learning something for themselves. So I'd talk about some kind of organism. 
I'd tell them some cool facts. Now, obviously, I wouldn't lie about the curriculum because the curriculum is, uh, you know, something unchangeable, a monolith. But mm -hmm. you can talk about extracurricular stuff. You can say, oh, did you know this Elysia chlorotica slug is the only animal in the world which can do photosynthesis, you know? And that intrigues them. Wow, an animal that does photosynthesis, a Pokemon in the real world. They go online, <laughs> they search it up. They realize it does not technically do photosynthesis. It essentially steals chloroplasts from slugs and then repurposes them. Um, and they tell you, you know, that fact you told me, that was a lie, that was an over-exaggeration. And I'd be like, made you look. Because I tricked the student into learning something for themselves, into going online, searching up something, doing something, because the only way we learn is if we do something about it. Not if we just sit down and listen to somebody blabber on about curriculum, you know? Right. So that that's why I did, you know, Darwin's Deviations as a podcast about weird biology. But I continued on with this trickster persona where I was satirizing the natural world and science itself. Because I have a lot of criticism to express uh, towards science. Science is not perfect. Um, I've always been of the mindset that science is 100% fact, but it is 1% of the universal fact. So everything that science says is true, but science only says 1% of the truth, and it will never achieve that 100%, you know? So there's, there's truth that, that doesn't, fall under the rubric of the scientific method. Yes. And Yet. the thing is, science acts... I always use the analogy of a video game because obviously I'm very young, you know? So, And I worked with very young uh, students. I need to animate them. I need to uh, relate with them. So I talk about video games. I talk about movies, stuff like that. Science is like an mul uh, online multiplayer video game. You have all these parties playing the same exact game under the same set of rules that they self-imposed upon themselves. And once you go out of the rule set, try to hack, you know, the, the engine of the game and play it by some other modified rules that you impose, then the whole scientific community is like, what is this person doing? We are paid to play this game by this set of rules. This is unacceptable. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in a way, science is limited by its own self-imposed system of rules. And it's more about uh, playing the game rather than seeking the truth. And in modern times, we can say it is more about seeking the truths which may be exploited. Mm. Because no, nobody yeah. really, you know, does discovery for the sake of discovery anymore. A few do, but they, they are looked down upon. Yeah. As I can figure. Who's going to finance them, you know? <laughs> exactly. They don't have, they have to do it on their own dime. Yeah. Because you, and, you need to, yeah. you need to pitch to the higher ups who are, you know, people who are sometimes not even educated or, or just businessmen. They're not interested in science. They tell you, okay, tell me how I can use your research to benefit myself. 
So you mm -hmm. need to skew your motives a little and say, this is uh, uh, an example I used in my first episode. Uh, I was covering a gecko that had the ability to completely shed its skin to evade a predator. And when you uh, read the research study that described the species, you know, once it was discovered, it is painting this picture that we should be motivated to further analyze the species because we can um, discover the mechanism of skin regeneration. So we may use it in cosmetic products. Right. And I'm like, why is nobody studying this lizard for the sake of studying a marvelous creation of the cosmic trickster of nature, you know? <laughs> because it's a cool lizard. Yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of what, why don't you just want to know about the cool lizard? Because we're not, scientists aren't all David Attenborough. David Attenborough would be like, that's a cool lizard yeah. with a British accent, of <laughs> course. But uh, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, in my show, like I treated all of these animals, essentially I made fun of them because I did a parody mm -hmm. podcast, but there is, you know, a whole other part of my show that is more, you know, subtle, like, uh, superficially, my show is very offensive, very satirical, very juvenile. But if you think about the things I'm talking about, it is essentially me being a trickster entity as I was towards my students, um, tricking you into being intrigued about something and uh, going on learning it for yourself, seeking the research papers, uh, seeking it on the internet. I was painting the picture of all these animals being some kind of absurdities of a cosmic trickster in a way. And I like viewing nature that way. I don't like viewing it as something that uh, exists for the sake of humanity that can be exploited, but rather um, evidence of the absurdity of reality itself and how a life finds a way in the most you know, extreme circumstances and in the most extreme ways, and that nature is not there for us. It's there for its own sake. Yeah. It's and life. Maybe we are there for the sake of nature, <laughs> which will yes. bring us to the overarching theme of today's episode. So, yes. Um, doing, you know, being a teacher and then explaining all these concepts to my students, explaining, you know, the structure of a cell and then the structure of organs and, you know, tissues and organism. And then when you go into ecology, you talk about populations, you talk about communities, ecosystems, the biosphere, stuff like that. Um, the thing is, in science books, and when you're teaching students about this stuff, you're kind of breaking it all down into separate things. So in science, somehow we view an organism, let's say, as the multicellular being let's say a human is an individual organism and then we cross uh, put put the line there and don't go any further we say okay the human is the most you know advanced organism and then we go uh, below that like what is the human composed of he's composed of organs and tissues and cells when you uh, study um, unicellular organisms 
you realize life, individual life can exist, you know, uh, at the stage of just one cell, but we exist on the stage of a multi-cell organism. So uh, what's up with that, you know? So I start viewing this as, you know, we are composed of millions and millions of individual organisms that have given up their individuality for the good life, because now it's more sufficient to exist as an organism that is specialized for a certain job in a whole system. Uh, you can view it as a corporation, and many of us work in corporations as do I now, because I'm not in the biology or teaching field. Um, you are specialized for a certain task for the sake of the whole you know, corporation as a closed system. Um, so where does the organism begin and end there? That, that's the question. Um, so when you go into ecology and talk about population dynamics, and then you talk about different populations of different species in the same habitat, that's uh, biocenosis, that's what's called a community. You talk about food chains, you know, um, you realize that this is uh, some kind of metabolism that's being established between different individual organisms, just as there's a metabolism being established between different types of cells in your body. So maybe we all, as individual organisms, act as cells of something much larger than us. You know, when you go uh, higher, higher up the hierarchy. You realize once you get to the you know biosphere as the whole living part of the planet, you know the whole as, as they say in textbooks the layer of the planet in which life is possible. That that's the biosphere. You realize that the biosphere is like some kind of amoeba composed of everything that is living on this planet, and isn't it itself somehow? an organism composed of its constituents, but its constituents are what we perceive as, you know, the most advanced type of organism, a multi-cell organism. So uh, I tackle these issues satirically on my podcast, and I started communicating with some people on chats, and somebody told me, like, dude, that is the Gaia hypothesis. I was never made aware of this, never in college. Now, are you aware of uh, the Gaia website? Yes. Okay. So yes. my, my first gut reaction was, is that the woo-woo website? Because <laughs> I, I don't want nothing to do with that. <laughs> Especially when talking well, about scientific stuff, you know? And he's like, no, the, the Gaia hypothesis is essentially that the planet Earth is a giant superorganism. Mm -hmm. I'm like, cool, I, I should look into that. And I looked into it. I read the book very recently for, for this <laughs> interview we're doing now. <laughs> um, and th this is something I experience a lot throughout my life. I come to some conclusions independently by researching things. And then I read that somebody in the 70s actually came to the same conclusions as me and it has a whole name. So I realize I'm not that, you know, unique and special. 
but uh, that that's the point of the Gaia hypothesis. You know, we are all we are all one. We are all part of something grander than ourselves. And that's one of my favorite parts of that hypothesis. And uh, I was I was I was introduced to the general idea of it by my grandfather, who was a farmer. And he didn't know about it as the Gaia hypothesis. He'd never read Lovelock. He would have liked it, mm -hmm. I think. But he would, you know, I, I stayed summers at, at his farm with he and my grandmother. And I was the little kid, you know, right behind both of them asking questions. And if I asked too many questions, he'd send me off to, you know, go play in the woods, go talk to your grandmother, go do anything but asking me a hundred questions. But the one thing I could always ask questions about was the mechanics of farming. And he said to me one time, he said, a farm without animals is only half of a farm. And I said, well, what do you mean? Because he always had at least cows, pigs, and chickens, but also sometimes ducks and a, and a, and a pony or a horse. He, he did used to use a horse instead of a tractor for, for many of the early years of my mother's life and her brother's. Um, so I, I asked why, and he said, well, he said, look at, look at the woods. Is there any part of the woods that has just plants? He's like, no, he said, you have to have something eating the plants and then their body processes the plants and the parts that it cannot use, it shits out mm -hmm. and then that feeds the bioorganisms in the dirt that makes good dirt for the plants to grow. You know, he, he was like, and so that's what a farm does. And there's so also, you know, the cycle of life and death there. You need animals yeah. to live so they may die. So something else may live after them. Exactly. That is exactly what he said. So my first understanding of the cycle of life came from a farmer who really didn't like to use chemical fertilizer. You know, the other thing he told me was the reason people use, because I said, well, what about the fertilizer in the bags? He said, well, you, you realize that the reason we have that at all is because of World War II. Um, and he knew that because he used to work in a defense plant. Uh, he didn't have to go fight. He didn't, he didn't get drafted because he was a farmer. And so he was growing food for sale and also because he worked in a chemical plant that then became a defense plant where they made nitroglycerin. So, and in fact, there's a whole town in West Virginia named Nitro. That's where he worked, where they made nitroglycerin. <laughs> so it's named after an explosive. And then there's the TNT plant in Point Pleasant. And <laughs> in, in Point Pleasant, which is very close to where he had a farm as well. So, um, the, you know, explosions. And that's why it was there. He said, we, we had all of this chemical after the, the war ended and we had all of these chemical plants geared up to make those chemicals. And those chemicals happen to be the same types of chemicals that are in urine 
and and in um, manure that that feed the soil. So somebody got the brilliant idea of figuring out the exact proportion that is best mm-hmm. and put them together. He said, but it's not best. He said, because there's lots of other things in manure and urine that also help the soil. And he he didn't have proof of this. He was just convinced of it because he of his observations and his understanding. Yeah. So was that yeah, sorry, you sorry. can't build good soil with that stuff. So I, I wanted to comment. So this is something he wouldn't have known as a non-biologist. But a lot of crops depend on microorganisms which are nitrogen fixating. And mm-hmm. it's not a question of how much uh, nitrogen you can provide the plant. It's how much nitrogen you can provide the bacteria and also cultivate the, in the roots. The, in yeah, the, yep. yeah. Ultimately, you need optimum conditions for the microorganism, which integrates with the plant to feed the plant. Um, th- that's something I'm very interested in. So I'm very interested in ecology. Now, Lovelock... James Lovelock is the environmental scientist who proposed the Gaia hypothesis in the 70s. So if the listeners have not realized by now, the Gaia hypothesis is the hypothesis that planet Earth is a superorganism composed of every organism on this planet, integrating uh, with the geology of the planet. So the living and the non-living existing as a whole individual entity and they act as regulatory mechanisms to each other so living beings uh, actually change the environment around them then the environment uh, changes its ecological factors which then influence the evolution of life so now you uh, you have changed your habitat, and in doing so, the habitat is forcing you to change in another evolutionary course. So through millions and millions of years, the living and non-living part of the planet form a co-evolutionary bond where they constantly change each other, and they act as a regulatory mechanism to each other. So his hypothesis was based on, you know, environmental science essentially life itself the meaning of life i got this from his book he did not you know write this down but it's the gist of his book the meaning mm-hmm. of life itself is not within life it's within non-life uh, life forms exist on this planet so they may act as a kind of thermometer uh, for all the uh, non-living parameters parameters of the planet you know we uh, regulate the the chemical composition of the air and the seas um we uh create these uh, intricate relationships with between each other where we circulate different elements uh we establish flow of energy through the ecosystem all that stuff so life is essentially here to uh, take care of the planet, which is both living and (laughs) non-living. It's Mm -hmm. an integration of everything, of all forms of matter. Now, uh, when we were talking about nitrogen fixating bacteria and, you know, integrating with um, 
corn, let's say. So uh, what interested me most in, in biology is, is ecology. Now, ecology is not the same as environmental science. Uh, when people hear ecology because of, you know, uh, the modern trope of eco this and eco that, they think we're talking about uh, non-pollution and uh, greenhouse stuff and, you know, saving the planet. But ecology is not that. Ecology is essentially the study of relationships between uh, organisms or between organisms and their environment. So I always put it like this. Let's say it is estimated there are three million different species of life on this planet and you have a catalog of three million different species and you give names to all of them. You know, you have a catalog, three million species. Now, uh, take all those species on this planet and uh, tie them together with strings, all of them with each other, and count the number of strings you have. You will have much, much more strings than you have, you know, species, much more than three million. Now, isn't each relationship that we establish between every species a kind of um, biological entity in itself, you know? And we, we can take this uh, beyond biology into sociology, which is where I, how I got to the, you know, paranormal and 14. Let's say you have an animal, let's say a snake. Uh, I'm not talking about a species, but gen generally snakes, which exist, you know, in every culture uh, on Earth. And you have different cultures, different people uh, interacting with the snake. You can tie strings between each person who witnessed a snake and then between each person who witnessed a snake directly and who indirectly describe the snake to somebody else. And then between different cultures and different re religions and blah, 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 you know, you'll have so many strings related to just one damn snake. <laughs> yeah. So I see, I see that as a biological organism transcending its biological existence into a cultural and sociological existence within uh within, you know, the collective unconsciousness of a whole other species, that is us. Mm -hmm. And that's how we form myths. And that's how we came to, you know, the 14 and the paranormal as well. Mm -hmm. So based on it, that, it, it's, you know, ludicrous if scientists want to erase mythology because... Uh, they are limiting themselves to a very, very small uh, niche of reality that is, you know, objective material reality. But there is some kind of ether. All these strings I mentioned, they are an ether that is non-objectively connecting every creature on this planet and every person with every creature on this planet. Exactly. It, it's... They're... I mean, now people, uh, scientists are studying consciousness more deeply than than what they were able to before or they were willing to before, which I think is a good sign because that ether, that etheric connection is part of each human being's consciousness. And it's also the part of a whole consciousness of all human beings. And then we get into the consciousness of all the other 
living beings on the planet because I don't think it's just in the realm of religion or spirituality that there is a consciousness in other beings where, you know, humans are learning all the time that animals are self-conscious. They understand that they have a self, you know, that used to be the big uh, dividing line between humans and animals. You know, it used, it used to be, well, we're more intelligent and we are self-aware and animals aren't, but well, then they find out, oh, well, dogs are self-aware. Oh, well, so are pigs. And oh, so so are seals and deer. And uh, so are octopi. <laughs> and octopi are really smart and really self-aware and sneaky little boogers or big boogers that can, you know, get out of all sorts of things. And it's, you know... Humans are finally opening up to the idea that consciousness is probably not just ours. It is everything else's. And pretty soon, you know, there are a few scientists who are starting to get the idea that there may be consciousness involved in plants, in trees, in fungi that oh, connects the trees yeah. and connects the forest into an overarching consciousness. So, what you're saying is exactly what I'm saying. You're just saying it from a biological yeah, perspective yeah. that all of these consciousnesses are tied together. So it, it's very interesting. I wanted to go into that uh, very briefly. You said uh, fungi and and trees. So that that's called a mycorrhizal uh, community, essentially. Uh, yes. What we think of as fungi or fungi, as <laughs> Americans would say, gif and jif. Um, yeah, I know, right? Yeah. So we think <laughs> we can't of, decide how to speak our own damn language. We think of mushrooms because that's the thing that we can see, and that's the thing that we exploit. You know, I mm -hmm. I actually did my uh, bachelor thesis on fungal uh, biodiversity, and um, almost every book that I was using was essentially a book where you'd look at the uh, mushroom and uh, see if it's poisonous or not. And I made the point in my thesis, um, uh, poisonous or not in relation to what? In relation to humans, why am I considering if something is poisonous to humans if I am a biology major, I am not an agricultural major, you know? Why is this book written uh, very anthropocentrically? It's like we are only acknowledging the existence of this species based on if we can eat it or not. Mm -hmm. Now... Uh, what we think of as a fungi, we see the mushroom. The mushroom is only the reproductive organ. It's the penis of the fungus, you know. The actual it's the fruiting body. Yeah, the fruiting body. The actual fungus is the whole system of threads that are underground that we do not see. And it is very, very hard to even find them because there is a whole network of these threads, these mycelia underground in the forest. And they're all, you know, um, you just can't differentiate what is what species. You need to do mm -hmm. molecular studies. So uh, what we're getting at, uh, there, uh, all these funguses, all this community of fungi in a certain forest, they connect with all the trees in the forest. 
Um, they get organic compounds from the trees to feed off of, and then they provide the trees water because the tree with its root system can only get so much water, you know, around it. But then it integrates with this whole network uh, under the surface of the forest, which can gain more water, you know, outside mm -hmm. of the radius of the tree. Um, and also there are a lot of studies now that trees actually communicate with each other using fungi. So the fungus is like a neural network between plants. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Also a cool fun fact in Oregon, you can find- Yes, I was gonna bring that up. <laughs> yeah, you can find the largest organism on this planet, which is a fungus. And we cannot and it, see it. it. It's, it's just the network of the, this mycelia uh, under underground in a national forest. Yes, and it's miles. Yeah, large. Yeah, it encompasses miles, and I I don't remember how much it weighs, but it weighs something ungodly. Like you know, it was compared to several blue whales or something. You know, just to and get it around a, a human brain as to how much living matter is being talked about. And yet it is, uh, it is inconceivable to us and we cannot see it. We are not aware of yes. its existence without, you know, science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's again, that's, that's, I love, I love fungi. I uh, paint mushrooms. A lot of my art that isn't for the podcast is, is mushrooms. I paint mushrooms that exist and mushrooms that I made up. They're symbolic, but they're also real. Um, they come in every color, which is amazing. So I can do things like make a mushroom rainbow, and it's really cool. Um, and people are finding new mushrooms all the time. And without fun fungi, we would not be here. Because, of course, fungi were one of the the first beings on the the earth like the the, the ground not in the water first terrestrial that, yeah. yeah the one of the first terrestrial organisms to really start helping to create soil so without the soil there wouldn't be plants without the plants there wouldn't be animals without the animals there wouldn't be people so fungi and then of course my brain goes Oh, so if we go to another planet, we can use fungi to help terraform to make soil so that we can grow plants so that we can eat that, 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 you know, and all of these chains and strings, as you say, start coming along in the, in the, you know, my and imagining. Isn't, so. it, isn't it kind of sad that we now know that only because we are looking for ways of discovering new new techniques of self-preservation anthropocentrism again so i was i was making uh, some episodes on on mushrooms for my show and since i did a show about you know weird organisms there's not much you can talk about mushrooms you know like a certain species that does something weird because they yeah. are not very well documented and researched now, the very interesting ones are all being exploited. Let's say there, there are mushrooms in the Chernobyl nuclear reactor that feed off of radiation. And the only, way, mm -hmm. the only reason we are even you know, documenting them is like, oh, maybe we can utilize them for uh, astronauts, you know, 
if they, if they come upon some space right. radiation and stuff like that. Which is all over space. Yeah. <laughs> space is not friendly to human beings or any other, you know, ma mammalian beings on this planet. It's, it's not the best environment for us. Now, another uh, example I like to make uh, relating to this idea of a collective unconsciousness, you know, in humanity. And this I always use when talking about the 14 and the paranormal. Um, obviously, we are, you know, supporters of Kiel and Jacques Vallée. <laughs> and this idea yeah. that maybe aliens are essentially a modern version of fairies and fairies are a medieval version of something else and, you know, stuff like that. So th these ideas diverge and evolve throughout time and space. Um, that reminds me of language. Now, language is not something that exists materially. Like, can you touch language? How can you, how can you prove language exists scientifically? There is no material evidence of language, but it is there. It exists in some kind of collective unconsciousness in an ether that connects all humans. And throughout time in history, like uh, as people settled, as they diverged uh, into different places and different continents, these languages diverged because we um, carried them around in our heads with ourselves. And they diverged and evolved into different forms. But they are not biological uh, organisms. They're not material. They're something abstract. But, but maybe, mm -hmm. you know, hastens their evolutionary process. They are not bound by material laws so they can diverge and evolve more quickly. So as we uh, dominated the planet, we have now formed hundreds and thousands of different languages and dialects. Um, now, I see the paranormal as that, you know, we have, let's say, sleep paralysis demons, but every culture has a different one. Like in mm -hmm. Tanzania, you have the, the Popobawa. In my culture, you have the Mora. Uh, in, in Scottish folklore, you have the old hag. And in America, you have the boo hag and stuff like that. Isn't that all some kind of archetype that originated from the same source, but kind of diverged and evolved uh, based on the location and the culture of the people experiencing it. Mm -hmm. So if, if there is some kind of ether that can uh, evolve and diverge um, and is based in this abstract dimension of existence that only exists in human on human communication, let's say, who knows what, what kind of things exist uh, within these ethers connecting different species together? Let's say the, the you know, fungi and the, and the trees. We do not speak their language, and maybe we will never uh, discover or understand how their communications works. But like, if we have myths, why wouldn't trees have myths if they have their own language, you know, that they can mm -hmm. understand? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that idea. And then what would a tree's myth look like? And would the tree's myth be the tree's myth or the fungi, fungi's myth? Or would it be a compound myth of the two species together? 
Well, we are compound species of a lot of things. Like, Our gut, guts are true. full of microbes. So are so is our skin. Our skin has them too. Yeah. We, we Along even... with those weird mites that live in our eyelashes that freak me out if I think too hard about them. So I don't think too hard about them. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're really weird looking and I don't like the thought of them being in my eyelashes while I sleep. So I, I don't know like what your plans are with the course of this episode, but let's just talk. So we, we chatted the other day and I told you about this experience I had while at college. Uh, I never had paranormal experiences other than say synchronicities and prophetic dreams but i like to pretend they're nothing more than my intuition you know <laughs> mm -hmm. so i had this very weird experience this was the first year of college we were at a, a river bank we were essentially all we had jars filled with alcohol and we were just taking samples of whatever we can and I was there alone, everybody left, and I um, saw a beetle just jump into the river. And that was weird to me. Why would this beetle do that? Like, it does not live in the water. But okay, I took the beetle, I put it in alcohol, and out of the beetle started coming this huge dark thread. And it just kept coming and coming out, like endless. It was very weird and freaky. And my first idea was, of course, the beetle is, you know, pooping itself because it's dying. Because it's dying. Yeah. Right. So I took it to college and my professor told me like, no, this is not poop. This is actually what's known as a horsehair worm. And horsehair worms, uh, so their larva uh, actually live inside of the insect and develop until adulthood inside the insect but as they are developing they are manipulating the development of the neural system of the insect uh, once the insect is an adult its brain is no longer the same as the brain of a non-infected you know insect and its brain is composed in that way when the adult worm releases some kind of chemical this causes a a psychological reaction within the insect that it wants to seek water and it essentially commits suicide by drowning itself into a body of water and then out of its body emerges this giant worm that swims into the water and finds a mate and then the cycle just continues on and on so i i was telling you this and you <laughs> mentioned toxoplasma Mm-hmm. Toxoplasmosis yeah. gondii. Yeah. So for the listeners, Toxoplasma gondii is a protist that exists in the bloodstream of one third of the human population on Earth. And we live with it. It is a part of our bodies. But what's interesting about it is it uh, finishes its life cycle in the gut of uh, cats. But in order to, uh, you know, come into the gut of a cat, it needs to infect a mouse. And when it infects a mouse, the mouse is essentially forced to be sexually aroused by the urine of cats. So it may approach cats, seek out cats, so it may be eaten. Uh, it's also an example of a suicide-inducing parasite. And how freaky is it that we live with that in our bloodstream? 
and how much of our consciousness is our consciousness and how much of it is of the residents of our bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and the interesting thing is the way that it gets into our bodies is because we handle the feces of cats, which if you have cats in your house, you've touched the feces of cat, even if you didn't touch the feces of a cat. Right. So yeah. even if somebody else cleans the litter box or they poop outside, you've touched the feces of a cat enough to get toxoplasmosis in your body. And now everybody's like, get rid of the cats. Oh, my God. Now, well, now it is being but the researched. Thing is, is, yeah. Like, do we actually. It's not new. Yeah. <laughs> and it's being researched. It's been there. Like, do we actually love cats because we love cats? or because we are forced to love cats by a, a consciousness-altering parasite that we live with. Yeah. I think we probably do love cats, but it's been so long that it, 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 there's no way to tell. But they did serve the great purpose of protecting our granaries way back in the day, which is how they domesticated themselves. Because unlike dogs who we actively domesticated, I... I'm pretty sure that cats kind of put up with us because we fed them and we fed them to keep them closer to the granaries so they could eat the mice and the rats that had toxoplasmosis in them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it just became, you know, I think we're probably secondary to the, to the parasite. So we're kind of a, I don't know, an after effect because and I wonder, do do uh, do they exist in wild cats too? I think it does. It has to because that's where it would have come from. I mean, it should have existed. I have to ask my domestic cats did not exist before humans, so something yeah. needed to so evolve out of to. something. Yeah, it, which came first, the chicken or the egg, the toxa or the cat? Um, I'll have to ask my brother-in-law because he did postdoc work on toxo so i'll have to okay so is it you know does it exist in wild species and if so is it only the small wild species that became the domestic cat because there's a lineage of two or three different small wild cats that became house cats so yeah good old toxo <laughs> i'm probably very infected with it yeah because i grew up with cats and have them and have had them my whole life. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very, you know, in, intrigued by that question. What is an organism? How do we define what an organism is? If organisms live within organisms, which live within organisms, just like those Russian babushka dolls, which are one inside of each other, you know? Until you get to the little tiny one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, am I a, an organism if I am composed of millions of organisms, every cell in my body, but also um, thousands of other multicellular organisms which share my body with me? And am I an organism if I am a part of a larger organism that is, you know, Gaia, the planet Earth? And then there's the question, and this I thought of, oh... Probably 30 years ago, it might have been longer ago, but I was, I was reading, it was when I was in pre-med school, so it was over 30 years ago, 
I wanted to be a, a veterinarian. So, you know, pre-med and pre-vet school is the same thing. It's a zoology degree. And uh, I was sitting there and studying. Um, and it was, it was the same, same thing we're talking about now. It was the, the internal workings on a microbiological level of mammals. So I was looking at that. And I was like, well, you know, Lovelock is right. That's, we are all composing. It, it's, it's like we're the cells of Gaia along with the trees and the grass and the other animals and all this. We're all part of that, that big thing. And, you know, what if, like, so are we like the, kind of like the nervous system of Gaia because our consciousness is, is highly developed are we part of that the nervous system and the consciousness itself? Well, then how 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 do you communicate with a consciousness if the planet itself can't speak? Well, you communicate in symbols. And then I was like, well, what if all that paranormal jib jabby business, uh -huh. you know, UFOs, Bigfoot, uh, ghosts, apparitions, fairies, floating balls of light? whatever they're all you know i've already come to the conclusion that they're all somewhat connected what if that's gaia talking to us because if you look at the communication from the ufo occupants if you look at them from starting with the uh the the contactees in the 1940s and 50s yeah, and brothers. earlier than that there were there were some in the 1930s as well we just didn't call them UFOs. It's always um, and uh, stop your nuclear weapons. It's always stop the nuclear weapons, stop killing each other. The Blessed Virgin Mary says the same thing, starting in, you know, at least the 19th century with Bernadette of Lourdes. Um, and then there's the Fatima visitation. What did she tell the children? She said, you must stop having wars, pray, come together love God, you know, it's the same thing. Love each other, stop nuclear wars, stop having violence. I was like, well, what if that's Mother Earth basically saying, y'all stop, this isn't helping. Why yeah. are you doing these things? Yeah, that's you essentially know, what I uh, approve of. And like in modern times, obviously we're not listening. So now people are experiencing not. Bigfoot because we need uh, obviously a cute poster child in order to to want to save the planet. You know, uh, pandas are not effective anymore. So instead of utilizing pandas, Mother Nature utilizes the image of a Bigfoot. And then people see Bigfoot and think, wow, this is miraculous, and I don't want this to go extinct. <laughs> that could be. I mean, it could be also because they look human and they have yeah you need a, a poster child beca because we are very anthropocentric yes we are i am not we a big are. fan of bigfoot because of this but i realize that it is you know gaia using some th it's evolutionarily the best mechanism to spark our intrigue and interest now you can't no but, nobody cares about cryptids you know quadru quadrupedal cryptids on four legs but let's show somebody a cryptid that is also human so they may resonate mm -hmm. with them you know 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I think now you had an interesting idea about the grays and UFOs and why we see the lights in the sky, not as dragons or witches or, well, okay. Some other cultures still do see them as dragons, witches, fairies, um, and other flying creatures, but instead see them as spaceships. You had a very interesting idea about why humans are being enticed towards space. Yeah. So my idea was like, I discussed this on a few podcasts. Essentially I see the paranormal as a self-control mechanism of the ether of this, uh, abstract plane of existence that exists within, you know, humanity of a social unconsciousness. So Gaia is uh, utilizing the social unconsciousness to communicate with us, let's say, and to imprint certain symbols into our brains because our brains are a product of Gaia. Our brains evolved through natural selection. And what is natural selection than nature itself? So how much of our brain is actually our product and how much of it is nature's product? And ultimately, even if we think that our brain is on our side, maybe our brain is on the side of the collective whole of mm-hmm. Mother Nature. So I had this idea like maybe monsters are Jungian archetypes that exist in a social unconsciousness that are... Uh, invoked whenever humans experience something that they cannot fathom uh, what I'd say is a liminal space or an uh, unknown frontier and in antiquity you know forests were unknown frontiers you still had people uh, afraid to go into the forest and constantly having to battle wolves and other denizens that came from this very mystical place that they do not understand And then people reacted to the forest by invoking these images of fairies or monsters. But now that we are cutting down the forest and covering them in concrete, that's our way of, you know, dominating the unknown. We pour Mm -hmm. concrete over it so we may uh, stop the progression of nature and have control over it. Um, we are left with uh, much less and less of these, you know, uh, unexplored frontiers. And what we have now are, let's say, the ocean and the skies. So now instead of seeing lights in, in forests, we are seeing lights in the sky because we have chased off these furies and monsters into the sky. And we carry this self-control mechanism within our, our heads Wherever we go, whatever we dominate, we will constantly come to the edge of the known and the unknown, you know, some kind of liminal space. And there we will start seeing these monsters, which are essentially the gatekeepers of the unknown. Now, uh, I originally thought maybe this is to prevent us from progressing, you know, because we are the cancer of the earth and stuff like that. But I listened to a few of your pods and you actually make a good point of maybe they are there to um, lure us and to spark intrigue, to help us learn and to help us develop ourselves intellectually and culturally and spiritually and whatever. 
And the more I think about it, the more that's true because maybe, as you say, Gaia is using us to develop a new type of consciousness for itself. We think our minds are ours and for us, but our minds are a product of natural evolution. So nature may open up a new dimension of existence for itself, utilizing us as gateways to other dimensions. If I don't know if you've ever read uh, Consciousness and the, the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind by Julian Jaynes. It's a big old doorstop of a book. It's <laughs> huge. And, and a lot of it hasn't aged very well. But it is interesting because it does talk about the two hemispheres of the human mind or the human brain, the physical human brain, and how that can also represent the um, conscious mind that we're in control of and the unconscious mind that we're not necessarily in control of. And that originally it was a bicameral mind where there was not crossover from both to the, you know, back and forth with the, the caudal membrane and the putamen allowing energy, you know, energy and, and, uh, thoughts to move back and forth, electrical energy. Now they're more integrated. So this is, this is about, we were, we evolved with these two, essentially two brains, one that we controlled essentially. And the other one that talked to us as if they were voices from outside. And that's how we started religions and spirituality because we were hearing the voices while eventually the two blended together. Well, the interesting thing about that is, is that could have been the way originally this, this whole control mechanism of Gaia's consciousness worked with humans. Even if that's not how it worked, it's a good metaphor for how we can visualize it. So we can see it in our, in our, minds and and understand what it would mean if our minds are not completely our own yeah what, because what if that freaks people out that what if people don't like that <laughs> the higher organisms are constantly whispering into our ears exactly but, and but people our, don't like to, our ears cannot register them but maybe our consciousness can so we are not aware yes. of these whispers yes um, and I think there might be some people whose consciousness is just a little bit different. And so they can hear it more than other people do. That's why you get people like the children at Fatima who could see the lady and the lights and could hear her voice. Whereas people around them maybe only saw sort of a, a, a diffuse light that they couldn't explain. They saw the children enwrapped in a, in a different state of consciousness in a trance that they couldn't physically bring them out of, you know, cause they poked them with pins because you know, that's what you do with kids. You poke them with pins. That's a good idea. Sorry. I'm very sarcastic. About I that. had a friend of mine, um, a 14 researcher, uh, Cole Harold, tell me about this. Now I can't remember the details, but maybe, you know, because you're well versed in this stuff 
uh, old stinker. Are you aware of that, Legends? It's some kind of wolf mm. creature or something. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. essentially, he told me, like, the people hunted down the wolves to extinction, killed all the wolves. And now they are seeing old stinker, this mythological wolf, because uh, nature is is projecting this image upon them and mm -hmm. uh, they are feeling guilt over causing the extinction of a species i can see that uh, that that yeah. reminds me you know of ufology as you said uh, people would be abducted and then shown these projections of natural catastrophes <laughs> maybe, oh yeah maybe it's gaia you know posing as uh an alien or an alien abduction i mean not posing but let's say a projection Mm -hmm. it's projecting this image into our minds um where a higher being as we would perceive it a higher being because we cannot perceive gaia as a higher being we need aliens in order to mm -hmm. listen projecting something aliens like that, that, yeah. that that look kind of like us. So, or as you yeah. say, Fatima, it's projecting a religious icon because we are mm -hmm. not going to listen to nature. So it needs to trick us into listening to something that we perceive as a higher, more intelligent being. Again, it's anthrocentrism. It's, it's, we, we look at things that are like us. So, you know, I, I make, I make fun <laughs> of the Star Trek aliens all the time that they're all like, basically humanoid with weird foreheads or weird colors or whatever, you know, um, and, uh, or strange noses, weird ears, you know, little, little things. And yes, that's because it was the 1960s, damn it. And they didn't have big budget and they didn't have CGI. And so they had to like glue latex to people. Yeah. That, okay. That's true. But it also, you can't relate. You can't, yeah, relate with an yes. octopus or something. It makes it easier to tell the stories. Yeah. So we would have more empathy for the ones that looked human. Now I'm seeing more people having empathy for non-human living beings. There's There's been a development. Um, there's a new... Uh, television show called uh, Resident Alien, which is really, really good, by the way. So if you can stream it wherever, it's really good. It, it's on Peacock. Um, it, it's an NBC show. Yeah. Has Alan Tudyk as this alien that originally came to the to the Earth to destroy humans because we are the cancer upon the Earth. We're messing up a perfectly good planet. Why the hell are we here? Get rid of them. But he crashes his uh, his his spaceship, and he ends up having to he he loses the bomb that he's going to use to to blow you know to kill all the people, and uh, so he has to find the bits of his ship, and he has to find the the bomb, and he has to do all these things. So he takes the form of the first human that he runs across, who tries to kill him with a gun because well he's you know this seven foot tall looking you know has extra arms and and you know looks sort of like a lizard kind of like an octopus kind of messy not not attractive to a human so he you know he takes the form of this human who happened to be a doctor 
who ends up working in the town as a town doctor. He, he gets all in, you know, roped into all this human stuff in this community, little tiny community. Well, it turns out he's related to octopi and he goes into a, a sushi restaurant and there's an octopus in a tank and he starts talking to it. And the octopus uh, tells him, Hey man, they're going to eat me at the end of the week. You know, I'm, I'm scheduled to be the special. And so he rescues this octopus. He grabs him out of the tank and, and runs off down the street like a big freak. And it's, it's really, really funny. But the thing is, is it's interesting watching with my kid, Fox, who's 15. He instantly was right there for that octopus. He was like, run, go save the octopus, you know? And of course I would, as a kid, I would have been the same way, even though octopi are kind of creepy looking. I still would have been like, yeah, we don't need to eat that guy. He's, he can talk. You can't eat him. That's bad. Just send him. Go run. You know, so I think, but, you know, other people, if you read about it on the Internet, are like, you know, save that octopus. Run. Go. So we're, we're not as fixated on looks as much. Now it's if they can communicate with us, mm. if they show signs of consciousness, now we're more apt to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So it'd be interesting to see if we get some aliens that look truly alien in our UFOs anytime in the near future. So, like, are we going to get octopi? One problem I have with, uh, you know, classic ufology. Is this idea, so if there is a civilization that is so advanced technologically and intellectually that they can traverse the galaxy, why would they visit us? And since I am Gaian, I'm thinking if there is such a civilization, wouldn't they be aware that they are a part of their own planet's ecosystem? Why would they want to escape their planet? I imagine that such uh, advanced beings would want to stay on their own planet and not visit other planets. But then we mm -hmm. talked the other day. I, I think this is what you were <laughs> uh, talking about when you said I have an interesting idea. So I have this plant um, on my balcony that I did not water. It's a bromeliad. You know, it's a tropical plant. And it uh, spawned this stalk with flowers now that it's shriveling up and dying. So I thought, is Gaia uh, enticing us to explore space? Because it may eventually utilize us as its own seeds of dispersal, you know? So mm -hmm. it's not like, it's not just that it is expanding its own outreach to other dimensions via our consciousness. But it is also using our consciousness to expand its own outreach materially and physically. Because mm -hmm. it has its own lifespan. The sun will explode somewhere way into the future. But like, okay, let's say, no, Gaia is not dying off, but maybe it wants to reproduce. What if it's using us as its seeds? It is enticing us to... Uh, uh, go out of the house it, it is kicking us out of the house <laughs> as we're teenagers <laughs> yeah we're teenagers <laughs> it's kicking us out of the house so we may, may explore the galaxy so we we may spread its seeds in the universe that's 
that's I don't see that as problematic at all. That's one of the 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 necessities of life is that it reproduces itself. Yeah, but you know the theory of panspermia. Yes, that a life evolved because some meteor crashed onto Earth with bacteria and whatnot, and everything we have now is an evolution of an alien organism. But what mm -hmm. if panspermia is a consciously set into motion by mm -hmm. a Gaian superorganism? What if a planet reproduces via panspermia by sending its own life forms to other planets? It makes sense. It and it also sounds better than our whole manifest destiny. We must colonize everything. Uh -huh. Well, it is <laughs> because I'm not real fond of that. It's like, oh, we're so good at colonizing things on our own planet. Let's go mess other planets but, up. But <laughs> you know, when we're talking about anthropocentrism, we do everything for ourselves, and we are very, you know, egotistical and narcissistic and greedy. But what if that is uh, intentional? Not intentional mm -hmm. from our side, but intentional from the side of the planet because it is an adaptation that needs to be present in our minds so we may trick ourselves into believing that we are so mighty and grand so we may fulfill the destiny of the planet that we are not aware of. Nothing wrong with that thought. <laughs> I, You know, one of, one of my things when people look at... Uh, sociology and psychology sociology being the psychology of a group of people um meaning why do people kill why do people uh help each other why why do we have people who are pacifists and cooperative and why do we have people who are aggressive and non-cooperative i actually think that both of those types, the ways of being, both of those, uh, both of those ways of communicating with each other and with the rest of nature are hardwired into our psyches. They're hardwired into our brains because they are too different and opposed survival techniques they have survived since the very beginning near as we can tell you know because we find bones from neanderthal and we look at them and there there's there's bones that were fractured at one point in in the individual's life and were healed and you can see the scarring on the bone that shows oh well this person had a broken leg and so this person was valued enough that the other people in its tribe or its family group healed the leg and, and then, you know, they lived X number of years afterwards, sometimes, you know, 20, 30 years after. So we have the impulse and the behavioral pattern to cooperate with each other and to cooperate with animals to cooperate with our environment, to work with it, not work against it, not try to dominate it, but to 
nurture it and and help it work for us with us but maybe sometimes we, to, we need to be motivated by the idea that we are dominating it yes and that's the other other part sometimes aggression is necessary um sometimes violence is necessary sometimes you know self-defense is pretty much universally accepted as a reason to do violence to another person. If you are attacked first, pretty much in all legal codes in among humans, it's cool if you if you attack back. You know, you're allowed to fight back and and even if you kill the other person, generally that's considered acceptable. Um and we extend that if we watch you know, nature shows, if we, you know, David Attenborough's out there, he's telling us about the lion and the giraffe, you know, the lion's trying to take down the giraffe, the giraffe kicks the lion's brains out its ears, good on the giraffe. Even if we like lions, you know, and we want the lion to have dinner for its babies, we, you know, we still feel both the cooperation and the aggression. Uh, so cooperation and, uh, what it, how it's it's the two C's cooperation and uh, conflict. Mm -hmm. we, it, both are necessary to our lives. So, what if sometimes we could see ourselves going into space just to explore it, or or sometimes it's because we want to conquer it. Do we do we explore? Do we conquer? And again, Star Trek, my favorite show. And Babylon 5, another favorite show, both embody both of those principles that we're going to go into space with both of these uh, survival techniques or survival mechanisms in our brains and in our psyches with us. And yeah, we will I, use it's them a, operatively. It's a grand symphony of Gaia. Utilizing these very op opposing forces, but only when it's necessary uh, in a certain concentration as in a certain point in time and space. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, you reminded me of something. So, you know about in invasive species. Oh, when yes. we're talking we about conquering them. and dominating. Here's something yes. very interesting you probably didn't know. There is a group of uh, plants called pyrophytes, essentially fire plants. Uh, one of them is eucalyptus, which you probably know from Australia. Now, what you probably don't know from eucalyptus, you know that it is used for, you know, peppermint and stuff like that because it has these oils inside of it. Mm -hmm. But these oils have a, a, a function for dominating their environment. They are highly flammable. And since these trees live in an environment that's very dry and arid, um, where there are a lot of forest fires, they es essentially instigate forest fires. They start them. And they have adaptations that they can survive forest fires. They do this so they may clear out the forest of all other species of trees, so they may <laughs> conquer the forest themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that, there are trees here in America that only release their seeds if there's a forest fire. Yeah. And like we're talking about human consciousness and, and conflict and domination, but this is a natural force that exists in, in freaking plants. Yeah. Trees are doing yeah. the same thing. 
but uh, on a very different time scale that we cannot see because we all exist in different perceptions of time. Even right. Gaia exists, you know, Gaia exists in eons. It does not exist in, it exists in days and years like we exist. No. And that may also be part of why the Fortean apparitions that we are subject to seem so foreign. Because if they are an extension of Gaian consciousness, if they are a means of the consciousness of Gaia to communicate with us, if the planet thinks in terms of eons, <laughs> we're not going to understand that quite, quite as much. We don't think even in terms of not, I mean, some humans do think in terms of generations, but a lot, I, I don't remember where I read this paper, but most people think in terms of weeks, months, and years, and they don't think of, what's going to happen in the next generation or the next generation. And that's why climate change has been so difficult to get through people's heads that they can't actually see it. It's almost like they're blind to it because they, yeah. they don't think that way. Now something Lovelock wrote in his first book. I don't know if you read it. Uh, he re-released it in 2000. That's the version I read. Now, in his first book, he was very critical of this whole eco-activism stuff. Uh, and then in his, you know, prologue, epilogue, he wrote, oh, I was misinformed. We didn't have, you know, data back then, blah, 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 to be, you know, cited towards that political side of the spectrum. But I, I was very intrigued by what he wrote, that uh, the whole... Ecological movement is more political than it is scientific. And maybe there is some truth to that, but I'm thinking if we are all controlled by Gaian consciousness, everything we do is for the sake of Gaia. And maybe we are polluting the planet for some purpose that we do not understand that is much higher than us. I know that will be very, very controversial of me for saying, but we, we look at that as, oh, no, we are destroying the species, this cute, cuddly otter and us. But maybe we are uh, creating the hab future habitat of something else. Well, we are. We, I mean, because that's the thing. If... When people say save the earth, they really mean save ourselves. Yeah. If they thought, you know, two more steps ahead. And and maybe the whole save the earth thing would go over better if we just were freaking honest about it and said save ourselves. Because that might get through the thick, you know, cranium of people who don't listen real well. Maybe, maybe that'll help. But... I had this idea. The truth is, is the, maybe we the are, planet will. Maybe we are. The planet will yeah, do fine sorry. without us. It'll do fine without us, and it will evolve other life. Yeah, in a different environment. Exactly because we changed the environment, and we changed it so far that we could not continue. Although I do think that that humanity will continue, whether for good or evil, um, because we are really adaptable. I'm thinking of this. 
it's science fiction romanticized idea. I know it, it is not very realistic, but what if Gaia is making us change the conditions of the planet to a certain point where it's unbearable to us? So we may be kicked off the planet. So we may disperse, as I said, be the seeds of Gaia. Mm-hmm. And then it just, you know, readapts and continues life on its own without us. Yeah, and makes something different. Yeah, I mean, even <laughs> flowers eventually become seeds and just disperse. The seeds do yeah. not remain within the plant. The seeds are not, the seeds are only used by the plant to disperse uh, and uh, expand its own re- radius of domination, let's say. But then yeah. the next year, the plan just continues on with its life. Mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, well, I mean, George Carlin said this, I don't know, 30, 25, 30 years ago. Uh, he's a comedian. I figure you know Yeah, him. I know. <laughs> uh, okay. I was just making sure. I was just making sure. I didn't want to be, like, American-centric and talk about something that maybe other people didn't know. But... He said that Gaia wanted us to make plastic, that that's why we were made. And now we've made plastic. Mm-hmm. And so she's kicking us the hell off the planet. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, that's what the whole thing was. She wanted plastic. She's got it. She's done. Get out. Go. Um, so, eh. <laughs> it's essentially knows? Tricking, tricking your teenage uh, child into doing something wrong. So you may have a reason to kick them out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Exactly. I like that. Um, but also you, you tell them, oh, out there somewhere, there are these cool things and you will have a journey <laughs> yes. and you'll explore. Sh- show them some UFOs fun. and aliens and tell them, wow, who knows what exists out there? Yeah, wouldn't that be cool? Go, go. Maybe you'll meet the Vulcans. It'll be awesome. Yeah, It'll be good. I, I'd make well, a, j- been- a joke related to... Sergeant Mantel, but it's pretty morbid. <laughs> I feel bad for him. Yeah. I feel terrible for him because he chases a UFO. He's ordered to chase the UFO because he calls back to base and he says, I see this thing and it's going at X miles per hour estimated. And they, they're like, oh, it's on the radar. And he goes, well, I'm going to follow it. And they're like, good, you do that. So that's basically an order. So he's ordered to follow it. He follows it. And he ends up dying, yeah. right? He crashes, he dies. And then what does the Air Force say? Oh, he was chasing the planet Venus. Well, screw you, Air Force. I mean, how do you think his family feels being told he didn't know what the planet Venus looked like? Man. <laughs> what kind of what kind of mean, nasty, horrible personality do you have to have to oh, it's just the planet Venus? So you're mentioning chasing. Um, I do a podcast now. I don't do Darwin's deviations anymore because I'm tired of making, you know, an audio cartoon. It's so much work. (laughs) So I do a proper podcast now and the proper podcast is 14 related and it's named tracing owls, but I wanted to name it chasing owls. Unfortunately, there's a band named chasing owls. But my idea was uh, we are chasing uh, natural forces being masqueraded as monsters. The logo of my podcast, Tracing Owls, is a barn owl 
spreading its wings, and behind it are the uh, shadows of Mothman and Braxy, which are essentially mm. traced outlines of the biological being, which is the owl. And mm-hmm. we, I use always the example of the Flatwoods Monster. I know you're from West Virginia. Maybe you'll hate mm-hmm. this, but uh, do, do you know what uh, great horned owls do when they're threatened? Oh, yeah. They put, yeah, they, they put their butt up there uh, above their heads and spread mm-hmm. their wing, wings and create this ace of spades type shape. Yep. Most likely the Flatwoods Monster was a great horned owl. And most likely we were just chasing owls, you know, <laughs> and most likely yeah. we traced an outline of an owl into monstrous proportions and created a whole mythology. And that's the idea behind the naming of my podcast. We are tracing outlines of nature. We are creating mythologies and we are transcending the miserable, puny biological existence of natural species into a cultural, mythological, abstract uh, more long-lasting existence. Mm-hmm. It's not a terrible thought. It's an interesting thought, and of course, one of the one of the explanations for Mothman is that it was an owl that people misinterpreted, or a sandhill uh, crane. <laughs> it's not a sandhill crane. I, <laughs> you know, I I was driving down the road with Fox in the front seat next to me driving down one of the main roads in Athens in the middle of the afternoon. So it was sunny. It was beautiful. And we drive past this little area of grass beside the road and there's trees around it. And I see a giant bird. And so I'm, I'm a, I love birds. I'm, I'm, I always say that if the universe talks to me, it talks to me in birds. Uh, so I'm like, oh, big bird, what is it? And I look, and it's a sandhill crane. I know this because I've seen them in zoos. They're not really terribly native to this general area. They sometimes fly through, but it's just kind of weird to see it. And I'm like, well, yeah. And there's a stoplight, and so I had to stop. So we got a good, you know, I'm like, hey, kid, look. There's a sandhill crane right there. Kid looked at it, looked at me, looked at it, and said, no way, that's Mothman. No, no, there's no way. It's got this long, skinny neck. It's got these long, skinny legs. It's got, he's like, it's gray and it has big wings. That's true. But, you know, there's no neck in any of the descriptions of Mothman. There's none of this, you know, he, and he's like, and it's got this big needle like bill. He's like, there's no way. Yeah, there's some kind of there's reddish no plume on its head. They say, yeah, oh, that has... could be mistaken for the red eyes. And I'm like, no. No. <laughs> the kid was like, nope. Nope, nope. He's like, that. That's just dumb. He, he was like, that's just dumb. That is dumb for skeptics to pull that up. That makes more sense that it was an owl with its reflective eyes. That that makes way more sense. And so then we had this mystery of this sandhill cranes right over there, and I I looked at it more closely, and it had a broken leg, and that's why it was there. It had probably broken its leg, and it it was you know, flying and it, it stopped there. So I get all concerned, you know, so we're, we drive, you know, up and turn around so we can come past it again. And there's a, a department of wildlife guy there about to catch it. And hopefully I don't, I don't know if they did 
wildlife rehab or if they put it down so that it wasn't suffering. But it didn't even make the newspapers. I was so disappointed. <laughs> I was like, what? why didn't it make the newspapers? Only one other friend of mine who was a biology teacher saw it and put it on Facebook, took a picture and put it on Facebook. I'm like, there he is. I see him. Uh, but yeah, Sandhill Cranes, uh, not Mothman. The the kind of sad thing about cryptozoology is that they want to be flesh and bloods and they want to uh, completely disregard the trees to over-exaggerated outlines and mythologies, as I said, and just reduce these stories to something biological. Yeah. And, like I have here a, a book from Lauren Coleman. It's some kind of field guide to Bigfoot and primates worldwide. And he covers the Kappa. I don't know if I showed you this. Did I show you the, the image? So yes. the image of the Kappa that he illustrated or the illustrator, whoever he was, is a Bigfoot thing. And with, he's yeah, with these little, yeah. little hands and kind of a little bald head. And, and, and a Kappa it's is like a not hunchback. described that way. No. Yeah, it's not described that way at all by the Japanese. So at it, all. it's essentially these white imperial bastards from Western countries going to these uh, foreign nations, or maybe not even going, but getting their data secondhand about their cultural icons, and then thinking, oh, no, these locals don't know what the heck they're talking about. I am a cryptozoologist, and I know what things exist in their forests, and this is a Bigfoot. <laughs> it's well, not a the yokai. Thing that kills me yeah. The thing that kills me about that is, first off, the kappa is supposed to be a turtle, turtle-like. It's turtle-like. It has a beaky kind of mouth. It has sort of a shell on its back th that, you know, makes it look hunchbacked. And it has a hole in its head that's full of water. It doesn't have a bald head. It has, you know, this, this spot on its head that's full of water. And... It's not like Japanese people don't know anything about a primate or a monkey-shaped thing because they have snow monkeys that sit in water yeah. in the winter in the hot springs to stay warm. So they already have a living, breathing, flesh and blood primate living in their, their country, has been there ever since there have been humans because they've drawn pictures and painted lovely paintings of them all this time sitting in the water and yet lauren coleman is like oh kappa is a bigfoot it's more likely if you're gonna take that tactic that it, it would be a snow monkey yeah. i it's just <laughs> the what kind is, of nonsense it is uh, cultural hijacking so the japanese have yokai and yokai are Spirits, but not spirits in the Western sense of ghosts and haunted houses. You know, it's more like what you would consider spirits or fae. It's uh, nature elementals, which interact mm -hmm. with humans. And there are these fairy stories related to them. And it's always the human learns humility through the interaction with this spirit being. And that's, that's the it, And it's part of their religion. Yeah. It's, it's Shinto. It's Shintoism. Yeah. yeah. And so you, you have somebody not only culturally hijacking, but you have somebody culturally hijacking a religion 
it, it, that's just and you know what uh, it's it's essentially it's not cool the mainstream cryptozoology community will only accept bigfoot let's say it won't accept the idea of the kappa being some kind of uh, giant turtle creature with a water bowl on its head you need to uh, repurpose it and appropriate it into the shape of a bigfoot so you may tell your colleagues a this is something legit cryptozoological because they will accept bigfoot more than they would accept this weird abomination it's the same in his book with the mapinguari do you know what the mapinguari is i missed that okay one. so it is uh, a creature in brazil uh, a very large, hairy, smelly creature that has one eye. It's a cyclops and has a giant gaping mouth on its torso. He also. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've seen yeah. the picture. He also describes it as a Bigfoot. And cryptozoologists <sighs> usually describe it either as so a what's, Bigfoot or as a ground sloth. What the, what's the thing in the. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, these. Uh, these locals who created these myths don't know what the heck they're talking about. I know everything. It's the yeah, same that's... with with Mbembe in in Africa, and th that's yes. a much much more controversial topic. You have hundreds yes. of cryptid podcasters now talking about the Mokelema Bemba and its supposed existence, and oh, dinosaurs probably exist in the Congo. Well. The only reason we're talking about living dinosaurs is because some of these cryptozoologists were funded by the Mormon church and by creationists. And they, mm -hmm. these cultures who want to prove, yeah, they want yes. to prove dinosaurs walk with humans. So they go to cultures, which don't know what a dinosaur is and then ask them, Oh, what did you see? How big it was, how this, how that, and probably the locals don't even know what to say. It's more, uh, folkloric tongue-in-cheek spiritual creature you know as you say a part of religion even so they yeah. give these descriptions and then these guys show them pictures of dinosaurs which are like from the 1920s which are outdated and non-scientific that, that aren't even accurate yeah yeah and then they yeah. they, they perpetuate the story that this is a dinosaur because they told the natives that they saw a dinosaur. No, you did not see what you think you saw. You saw a dinosaur. Yeah. That's cultural imperialism. I I will say it. I don't like it. It's irritating and annoying. And yes, most of the, the people hunting that particular cryptid are, are either Christians themselves or they're funded by evangelical Christians and you know, the Ropen to further their beliefs, the Ropen mm -hmm. or the Kongamato. They're no. like supposed pterodactyls. Oh, the locals okay, describe yeah. them as birds, but you know, the people, the cryptozoologists who are, especially the Ropen who are investigating the Ropen are very openly, uh, fundamentalist and creationists and are even funded by creationist yeah. museums. Oh yeah. The wonderful one in, in Kentucky that, yeah, that an entire town helped pay for through tax dollars because of some grifty bull crap <laughs> that was, you know, perpetrated by the 
fundamentalists who built the museum and making a deal with the local government. And yeah, now I, it hasn't I, made enough money to pay for itself yet. I wouldn't I have wonder why. anything against, okay, say creationists or anything against, say, the idea of a living dinosaur. If people are actually reporting to see a living dinosaur, but they're reporting something else and then you are repurposing it into something yeah. that you want. And even if you find a living dinosaur, how is that proof of the Bible being, being true? It's proof of a dinosaur still existing. Yes. I yes. Mean, it's it, not logical. It's like a it isn't pareidolia with, with these uh, symbols of images of the Virgin Mary on toast and stuff like that. Like somebody yeah. uh, sees a Virgin Mary uh, on a piece of toast and they say, oh, this is proof of God. No, it's proof of Virgin Mary on a piece of toast. Uh, yeah, that's that's proof that you see things and that we're wired to see faces and recognize faces instantly because, well, that's a good evolutionary means of protecting yourself yeah but like you know who's in your tribe and who the, isn't they you know that there's to a the, to the highest you know peak yeah i'd say okay this is proof of somebody having latent psychokinetic abilities and doing photography on a piece of toast like yes. say the faces of belmez you know but yeah. how do you go yeah. from from a piece of toast to maybe the possibility of that you can go that far but then you go that far to, oh, this explains the whole Bible and God, this this piece of toast. Yeah. Okay, whatever, dude. Yeah. <laughs> like, hmm. uh, yeah. I, I love pareidolia because in a way it's a tricksterish sort of thing. It's a trick of the mind. It's a trick of the eyes. And it's one of those things that allows the trickster element of the paranormal to work with us on us and and give us visions of different things yeah well i i always like i i told you yesterday so i am a huge supporter of hoaxers uh your listeners will probably hate me for this but let me explain myself if if the paranormal and the 14 and the esoteric and whatever you want to call it if it is you know a psychosocial mechanism or adaptation or something maybe sometimes you need to trick people into uh, instigating the paranormal phenomena into uh, bringing them into the mental state where they will spark the phenomena just like me uh, being the teacher acting like a trickster tricking my students into learning something for themselves now i told you like spiritualists from the 19th century and we all know how spiritualism was full of these hoaxers but maybe oh yeah but maybe these hoaxers actually knew that if you organize a group of people and you want to harness their mental energy to a certain point in time and space to instigate a real phenomena you need to trick them to bring them to that state of mind mm -hmm. so you hoax yes. in order to eventually spark something genuine yeah i mean i think they were probably hoaxing to make money but yeah. <laughs> there's also just because there's hoaxing doesn't mean that there's not genuine phenomena as well I'm I'm a huge fan In fact, of Ray Barker, and oh, he was yeah. he was notorious for hoaxing. Yeah, 
they, yeah, they hoax and a they lot were of... messing with Keel all the time. <laughs> yeah. Those two, and that was that was part of their shtick. That was, I guess, that's how they uh, expressed their friendship. Is they messed with him. I wouldn't know anybody who does things like that. Um, but maybe yeah. Keel actually had genuine paranormal experiences instigated by pranks from Mosley and and Great Barker. Yeah, all those phone yeah. calls. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, what I was going to say about hoaxing is, again, it doesn't mean just because there's, okay, the the hoax that I'm thinking of is uh, the the poltergeist, the Enfield poltergeist, where they determined that Oh, well, they they took a picture of the girl or took a video of the girl throwing an object at some point. But that was near the end of the several month period of things happening. And she said that it had stopped. And so she was trying to get proof. So people would listen to her, so people would believe her because Yes, she was the center of the phenomena. And, you know, there were all kinds of things that she couldn't have actually done that that were witnessed by, uh, I know of at least one cop saw it happen and saw that she wasn't actually physically doing anything. There was nobody else in the house who could have physically done it. So, it, again, it's it's that tension between hoaxing and genuine phenomena and how not believing your um, experiencers will lead to hoaxing because they are so desperate for people to believe them. See, I got over that. I'm just like, if people think I'm crazy, they think I'm crazy. I don't care. Reality is many <laughs> shades of gray, <laughs> many shades yeah. of gray Barker. <laughs> yes. Yes. It is not black and white and it is very, very complicated. We, we talked about Gaia. So how complicated can we get? Uh, when we're talking about Ray Barker, so he was known as a hoaxer. And after he died, his family said, oh, yeah, he did it all for the money. I, I genuinely be believe that he was a myth maker and that he was probably aware of this. He really genuinely loved the phenomena. He did exploit it. He did instigate hoaxes, but he uh, caused people to have paranormal experiences or directly or indirectly through his writing. Yeah. I, I see, yeah. let's say the Patterson Gimlin footage. I see it as a hoax. A lot of people will <laughs> hate me for that, but okay. So there was this thing going on on Instagram. Uh, somebody, uh, another podcaster posted like, what are your opinions on the Patterson Gimlin footage? And I said, I think it's a hoax, but, and it's a proven hoax, but uh, this does not dismiss its value because it has very, very important historical, sociological, folkloric value. It instigated a whole phenomena. It made it mainstream. Now a lot of people are searching for Bigfoot and seeing Bigfoot because they were inspired by this footage, you know? because it became mm -hmm. a mainstream thing. So even if something is fake, its influence is felt. And how fake is something that influences and changes the world, you know? 
exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, in a way it doesn't matter. And the other thing, you know, if, if Bigfoot turns out to be a tulpa, a creation of the human consciousness, yeah. a, or a creation of the guy in consciousness that we help along. And, you know, sometimes it's solid and sometimes it's not, let's make it a woo Bigfoot. It's, 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 there's no flesh and blood ape ever. Yeah. Although I, I, I would like there to be, honestly, I think it would be cool. And I don't think that precludes having the woo ape either because we have uh, apparitions of every kind of living being that does exist. So why not the Bigfoot too? So whatever. Anyway, but let's say that the woo Bigfoot is a creation of humanity's subconscious mind and that it leaves footprints, right? Except they stop in the middle of a field that's muddy everywhere and then it disappears. Yeah, I, well, I can see go? you're very good friends with Joshua. <laughs> yeah, and it just stops and it goes away. Well, why did it go away? Isn't it cool to think that it might be a creation of our minds? I mean, I don't understand why people get so upset if you say something like that. And, and it's, you know, or you say maybe Gaia made it, you know. Maybe maybe it's uh, an extension of the collective unconscious. Maybe it's the consciousness of Gaia creating these apparitional beings. Maybe it really did come from a UFO. I don't know. But they, they want it to be something other than humanity or other than the soul of the planet. But damn it, isn't it cool? Just as interesting that we could have created that with our minds isn't it interesting that the planet itself has a mind that can create things that we can see Maybe that will we leave footprints? Of Gaia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I don't understand why people get like, oh, no, no, it has to be a separate thing. It, it, I'm like, look. Yeah, so it, wouldn't it, I got a response. It's still magical, dude. <laughs> I, I got a response to that. Uh, answer that comment I made on the Patterson Gimlin footage. And the response was from that podcaster, like fake, I don't know what, what you're talking about and who you've been talking to and what books you've been reading. But some people here want to study uh, Bigfoot very scientifically and you should leave your folklore and your uh, collective unconsciousness and stuff like that to folklorists and sociologists. I'm like, Aren't oh, yeah, folklorists yeah, yeah. and sociologists scientists as well? They do generally. Well, sociologists at least follow the scientific method. Depends on the folklorist. Well, isn't but it they time do to do unify stuff that is very all the science very like that. Now the you thing know, is, they, we don't have evidence of Bigfoot physical evidence to say, oh, it's a biological being. We do have folkloric evidence. So why don't we first uh, start studying it from the evidence that we do have? Why do we ignore the evidence that we do have? Why do we erase the fol folkloric aspect of it and sociological aspects and want to jump headfirst into something that we don't have or cannot obtain? And I always have because this humans. <laughs> I always have this we're analogy. Just... So let's say a, a Bigfoot hunter 
is interviewing some witnesses and uh, asking them, where did you see it? How big was it? This and that, blah, blah, blah. You know, very flesh and blood stuff. And then he goes through the forest looking for this creature and just goes and goes forwards and never sees anything. But if he would only turn back towards the witnesses, uh, uh, go back to them and ask them, how do you feel about this? Maybe they will find their Bigfoot there. We never ask uh, experiencers how they feel about something and why they saw something. It's always what you saw. It's not why you saw it. Why did you see this? Yes. Why was it that shape? Why? What is it about you that, that resonated with that shape? The problem is we would say we don't want to dismiss the experiencer. And we don't want to paint the picture that it's kind of like a victim blaming, like, oh, it's your mm -hmm. fault you saw that. But I don't see it that way. I see it as this experiencer is an extension of something much grander. He is an extension of a collective unconsciousness. We are all human. We are all the same. We are all connected by something. And if you talk with one human, you are... Uh, by proxy talking to all of humanity. So if you ask a person why they saw something the way they saw it, you're gaining insight into not how their, their brain works, but how the human brain works. That's why I liked Keel because he asks why. Yeah. <laughs> and he That's why we were talking like, on this podcast. Yes, that's he always asked why. Valet does the same thing. Why? And Valet, his metaphor was, you know, say you see people coming out of a building. Say, pretend you're an alien and you come to Earth. And you're standing there and a bunch of people come out of a building that has a uh, marquee on it that says uh, Lord of the Rings. And you ask them what, what they were doing in there, and they were like, oh, well, we, we just saw the Fellowship of the Ring. We just saw the Lord of the Rings. And you ask them, well, what's that? And they're like, well, it's this story. And, and you go in there, and you pay money, and you see it. There you go. And then we notice that there's another building across the street, and it says Rambo on the outside. And you go, you know, when the people come out, you ask them, what did you see? Well, we saw Rambo well, can you explain that to me? What is Rambo? And it's like, well, it's this guy, John Rambo, and, and he shoots everybody, you know, because he's mad and it has to do with the Vietnam War. And, you know, there's a lot of not, a lot of content-free statements from both of these groups of people for our aliens. So the alien says, okay, I have to experience it myself. It's an alien sociologist who puts themselves into the position like an anthropologist doing good work. So it goes in and sits among the humans and the light dims and they're look everybody's staring at this blank screen and then pictures start moving onto the screen and it's Rambo. And so he understands that it's Rambo. The the alien, okay, this is what Rambo is. And whatever's across the, the street is different. Projected from? 
that is what that is what <laughs> Valet points to and says that's what we need to do. We need to turn around and see that there's a little tiny window and there's light coming through that window from somewhere else. We don't know where it is. And it's projecting those those pictures that move onto the screen. And he says what he wants to do with ufology is he wants to come back to the movie theater after hours and break into the projection booth and figure out the inner work, what the yeah. mechanism is, why it works, how it works. It's so, so where did you read that? Uh, he said it in an interview. I actually read the same, few times. same thing, but I don't yeah. know if it, it's the same source we read. So I read an article that's about abating the UFO phenomenon and the control system hypothesis. And it, yes. And it explains yes. that I've read that, that yeah. one. So, yeah, I've also read it in like one of his books and I've read another interview where he talks and, about that. And he but, also yes. suggests we should bait the paranormal. That's why I say hoaxers are very valuable. They are baiters of the paranormal as, as those seance people, spiritualists, they are instigating a hoax, per perpetrating a hoax. So they may instigate a paranormal phenomena. So they may bait it. So they may research it. Um, but also this idea that Valet proposes, you need to put a wrench into the paranormal phenomenon. You need to screw up its programming in a way. It reminds mm -hmm. me of, let's say, the, the, we're on a Kiel show. So uh, MIBs and Jello, uh, the major <laughs> fr French that was seen by the lady yeah. who offered him Jello. So the... High strangeness starts the moment you introduce something worldly to something that's not otherworldly, you know. She introduced Jello to this thing, and then the high strangeness started where she started noticing all this weird behavior and weird characteristics of the guy. What if oh, you need to put a monkey wrench into the paranormal? Let's say introduce the Jello to this thing. So it may now not know how to react to that because it is just a projection. It does not mm -hmm. know how to interact with something that you introduce to it. It's only meant to be there. So you may witness it as a passive observer. Right. And if you, so, if you put this monkey wrench into it and screw up its programming, then uh, some little gap will open where you can see, aha, uh -huh, this is an illusion. It's like if you throw a tomato uh, on, on the cast of, of some kind of theater performance, and they all stop for a moment. And in that moment, the fourth wall is broken, and you see this is just a play. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, you were absorbed in it, and believing in it. Yeah. I just talked with somebody last night from New Zealand about an experience he had in the UK um, back in the 1980s. And it very much has to do with what you just said about a play, about this is a projection that you are meant to see. And there was a lot of interaction. It's, it's a very, it's going to be a very interesting episode uh, because it, it very clearly is articulated that what he experienced and what he saw, there was a part of his brain that was almost 
being scanned in a way to to help whatever it was resolve oh. into a shape. You know, I and, I went on an eye exam a few days ago, and they you know tell you look at this dot and just keep looking, look here, look that there uh, while they scan your eye. So what if it's like cues? Look here, look there, look at this, look at that, react to this. So it may bait you into a ritual, some kind of ritual that is, I don't know, has a purpose to scan you in some way. That's a very interesting thought. Yeah. I, and, and what you just said about the, the dot that you have to look at yeah. and you move it. I have thought for a while that the, the small lights that I've been seeing for decades in, in woodlands, they're almost like what my husband calls the dancing monkey. Look at the dancing monkey. Look over here. Look over here. Look over here. A distraction. So something over on the other side is doing something else that you're not supposed to look at. And I, I have had that experience out watching the lights with some, you know, some other people. And at one point, you know, there was three of us. Two of us were watching the lights and the third one who is very, you know, he's a woodsman. He, he grew up in Alaska. He's, he's got, you know, all these wilderness skills looked opposite of where the lights were and saw something. He didn't tell us what he saw, but it, it upset him and it shook him. And he grabbed both of us and basically pulled us. He's like, okay, it's time to go. We're going to leave. We're going to go back to the house. And I'm like, what's wrong? And he's like, nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm like, you saw something, you know, and the whole time he's, he's dragging us along and he's never a person to get scared by anything. And, and I was like, you saw something. He's like, yep, yep, yep. We're not going to talk about it. I'll talk about it when we get to the house, you know, and he was just freaked out. And so, you know, I'm trying to look back and see what he saw, you know, cause Hey, I want to know. And he's just like using physical force just to drag me. And I realized, you know, whatever upset him that much, I, I might as well just go along. I'm not going to fight him on this. So we get back to the house and then I I'm like, okay, so what was it? What was it that upset you? And he's like, I, I, it was big. I don't know. It was big. And I was like, well, what was it? He goes, it was black. It was dark. It was hard to see. It was dark. But those lights are a distraction. He was like, because you two were looking at those and I was looking at those. And then I turned and looked where they had come from. And back there was something. It was a thing. It was dark. I couldn't get any more sense out of him than that. So do you What's think. interesting is he doesn't actually remember it now do you he, think he it was the night it was uh, his own experience what he saw and has nothing to do with you but yeah i don't know that's the thing is he does he doesn't remember he's like whatever it was i don't remember the shape of it i remember that i got scared and i remember that it i had the distinct feeling it was time to go you know we can't stay here this is bad he was like and it was dangerous but I don't remember what it was. I can't, cause I, I was like, can you tell me about it now? So I could write it down, you know? And, and he, he was like, I can't, I've, I've forgotten. 
So whatever it was, it was enough for his brain to go, nah, no, you don't need that. Rewind. I'm going to tape over that. Don't like it. Don't like it. Nope. Nope. That, that's bad. very interesting. I'm very interested if this black thing was, you know, really there like for both of you, or if it was just a projection of his own mind, something that he had to see, but you had to see something else mm-hmm. that you both that had an experience, but a very different experience. Yeah. That is um, accustomed to your personalities. Now, I don't know how much time we have because we've been talking for two hours, <laughs> but let, this reminds me. So we talked some dirt on Bud Hopkins, oh, but this okay. reminds me. So the, I love uh, uh, missing time because of the stories of the witnesses, but not because of his crap, his interpretation. And there's this wonderful story of this woman who was, uh, abducted as a child and had this wonderful communication with the alien while they were doing tests with her. But later on in her teenage years, he was, she was again abducted and the aliens per, uh, organized a party for her because she helped them uh, achieve some high scientific, I don't know, research something. And there was this whole alien party for her. And along the way, they took some blood sample from her nose. So uh, right after this wonderful story, Bud Hopkins says, oh, no, this is a false uh, memory implanted into the victim because they were doing horrible things to her. So, you know, she may be uh, tranquilized or something psychologically. <clears throat> she had an experience. Don't muddy up her experience. What you are talking about is your own experience. Yeah. His idea of aliens being these evil creatures that are using us cold-heartedly for genetic research for breeding programs and whatever, that's his stuff. It has nothing to do with the witnesses. I agree. The, I agree. the same thing with Betty Andreessen. I love what Raymond Fowler did with her uh uh, investigation because he he let her go into the wacky woo side of everything into the phoenix that uh, blew up in flames and stuff like that but when you read books from other uh, abduction researchers and when they uh, write about her experience they will always ignore the phoenix story because they view that as a false memory implanted into her head because it does yeah. not go along with their own narrative. Yes. Yes. And yet... That's just as bad yeah. as ignoring data. That's creating data and imposing it on someone's experience. And they're imposing only on the first book, The Andreasen Affair. But there were four books on this. And later on, she had various other experiences that go into her being abducted uh, astrally, her astral body is being abducted, not her physical body, and related to light beings and related to near-death experiences. And Raymond Fowler went down the rabbit hole of this, and he he's no longer a nuts and bolts guy. He writes about near-death experiences and the afterlife related to yes. alien abduction. Um, but other researchers will cling to this uh, first account from Betty Andreessen and completely ignore the woo-woo stuff 
though the woo-woo stuff is later on became the dominant part of her whole experience from childhood. Yeah. 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 That's a whole other like, uh, episode. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If we talk about abduction, um, because I, I have issues. I have so many issues with, with, uh, Hopkins and Jacobs particularly. Yeah. And um, until then I will read more of their literature so we can, Oh my God. Know what we're Uh, talking about. (laughs) Yes. Um, I, I will say though that Valet said, uh, back when John Mack was still alive and was still publishing his books, uh, for listeners who don't know who John Mack is, was he was a, uh, Harvard, uh, psychologist. He, he was a teacher at Harvard university in psychology. He was a writer. Uh, he won a Pulitzer prize for, his biography of Lawrence of Arabia, which is where I knew him from because I had read that when it came out because I'm, I, I'm fascinated with the story of Lawrence of Arabia. So everybody now knows, wow, she's not just a science fiction nerd. She's a history nerd. And wow, she's really nerdy into all kinds of things. So anyway, he, uh, he was, he did all those things and then he met Bud Hopkins and he was fascinated with this idea that there were these creatures abducting people and he learned about hypnosis. I mean, he knew how to hypnotize people. He was a psychologist. Um, was he a psychiatrist? Did he have a med degree? I think, I think he, he was, was a psychologist. the director of the uh, psychiatry department of Harvard Medical School. He was yeah. a very, very important person there. He was really smart. Now, I'm I thinking mean, like, if, brilliant. if he learns hypnosis from Bud Hopkins. No, man. he didn't. He knew it. But he learned about how okay. Bud hypnotized people to get their abduction stories out. Um, but, you know when when uh mac did it the stories were different than hopkins and i think it's because mac was a more positive person a more positive personality but his aliens were much more friendly so valet said at some point in an interview that if he was ever abducted by aliens he really hoped that they were john mac's aliens and not bud hopkins aliens yeah, and J- Jacob's is, aliens are the worst. We, we just, no. <laughs> Hybrids. We, yes, they're just over there and we say no. Um, that, that's a reason that, I, I haven't read any books from Whitley Strieber. And I've been chatting with uh, the the Red Pill Junkie last night who, who was on your show. So yeah. uh, we've been chatting about this. He, he wants me to read the books. But I am kind of not interested in them when I see that he wrote a whole book titled just hybrids. It, it invokes this idea of, you know, Jacobs and Bud Hopkins. Yeah, I know. Okay. So here, here's my take on, on, um, Strieber. Two things. One, his first book scared the crap out of me when I read it. And I had read his novels before. He's a really good writer. Um, his novels are all in the horror genre. Um, and they were really good. The ones he wrote before uh, the the abduction book, the very first one. Communion. 
Communi- communion. Yeah. I'm like, brain, why? <laughs> I haven't had enough tea or coffee yet today, apparently. Um, so he, that book was, he's very good at describing the sense of terror that he had in this experience, in these experiences. I think it's worth reading the first one for sure. But I will say the first person that he went to for help was Bud Hopkins and Bud Hopkins hypnotized him. And if you read the, the transcripts of that session, he used leading questions as he always did with all of his subjects. And so I'm pretty sure he changed Whitley's, understanding of his experience oh yeah because his later books straight up changed it later books are titled the grays and the hybrids and so he but still even so when he stops dealing with bud hopkins his own view comes back to some extent now i understand it's more of a john mack view uh, related to the afterlife Yes, it's much more like that. And in that sense, it makes a lot more sense to me. Um, but it it does also, you know, Whitley Strieber is a fairly um, stubborn person, I would say, personality-wise. Um, is He has a strong personality. And even so, Hopkins was able to push his narrative onto him which shows me how dangerous that hypnotic um, method of investigation can be and how if care and ethics are not in the equation, it can cause damage to a witness um, when you have someone who's as strongly yeah, I'd agree. individual as, as Whitley Strieber has his belief moved and changed by a hypnotist. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm imagine, very against most. I don't know if hypnotism. you remember, but Hopkins for his book, uh, missing time. Most of the hypnosis sessions were done with, uh, this, uh, psychiatrist named Aphrodite Clamar, and she was not a believer mm-hmm. in alien stuff, you know? Yeah. And she was doing her job pretty well, let's say. But later when Bud yeah. started doing the hypnosis himself, I think that's where he did yes. the most damage to people. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I would never be hypnotized by it. But, but even John Mack, I just read his biography. Even he used leading questions at times and that, you know, I would read some of the transcripts and go, John, you know better. No, <laughs> that's stop, what I. Stop. That's why I love. I'm obsessed with the Andreasen affair. It's a magnificent book because it's essentially the transcripts, and they ask leading questions, and she's always no. It was not like that. It was like this. She, that's she's always that's constantly, you know, correcting keeping, them, correcting them. Yeah, she knows what she she saw or experienced. That's I, that's really good. All right, we should probably yeah. end it. <laughs> yeah, because we're like, you know, we're over two hours. I do have some, you know, longer episodes, but you know, I try not to go past two hours too much. 
I don't want people to, you know, fall asleep or have to stop halfway through and come back and then be like, what were they talking about? <laughs> so thank you so much. You know, you're welcome back, Darwin. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, you can channel the spirit of Charles Darwin anytime you want. <laughs> no, guys, it's not really. He's not channeling. I'm appropriating his name. There you go. <laughs> He's colonizing in, Darwin's In my first um, podcast, I had an episode about ghosts, and I had a scene where his ghost attacks me and says, you're ruining my name, lad. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I will definitely put uh, links to both of your podcasts in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much. No problem. It's, it's been great fun. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. <laughs>